0: Hello and welcome to Mint Dialogue, episode number 209. Today is Sunday the 28th of August 2016, and this interview is with Cathy Brown, Executive Director at Engage for Success, a social movement committed to releasing capabilities employees to improve performance and enhance well-being. In this podcast, we discuss the different enablers that employers can spark up in order to enhance employee engagement. We look at the challenge of creating corporate culture and corporate values, as well as how best to measure employee engagement. Some great insights for switched-on leaders. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset. That's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. So, Cathy Brown, thanks for coming on the show. Great to have you on. Um, Tell us who you are, what you do, um, because I saw you speaking brilliantly about employee engagement at a conference I enjoyed very much in London. And what is your mindset?
1: Well, yes, Cathy Brown, as you say. I'm the Executive Director for Engage for Success, which is the UK's national movement for employee engagement. We're a not-for-profit organisation. And my mindset, my mindset is generally very curious. I consider myself an explorer and a curiosity, absolutely. All
0: right. So let's let's talk about curiosity as a second uh, with regard to employee engagement. How have you seen this space move over the last few years?
1: Oh, hugely so. So uh, I got involved with Engage for Success um, right at the very beginning of the situation that we're in now, which is about five and a half years ago. And our goal has always been to raise awareness of the importance of employee engagement and give people the tools and the access and the research and everything to make a difference to themselves and their organisations. Five years on. Uh, it's so much more widely talked about, so much more widely understood than it was at that point. I mean, almost to the point where people say to us now, "Well, engagement—we've done all that. It's you know, we need the next thing." Um, and to me, actually, that's a real success. It means that we have successfully raised awareness of employee engagement as a concept and as a useful concept mm. to make businesses run better and to make things better for the people who work for businesses.
0: All right, so. Underlying then your mission, are we talking about um, an NHS, a health concern? Are we talking about a productivity concern? What is driving the mission behind your organization?
1: All of the the above. So there's very, very clear research demonstrating that there is um, a link to performance with engagement. Uh, And that it's – the link is two ways, but it's stronger in the sense of engagement to performance, so high engagement driving higher performance. So there's a clear business ethic there for improving how your businesses perform. Um, But then there's also – raft of very very clear evidence that higher engagement has um, a really positive impact on physical health on mental health on our own well-being as people who work and uh, so it, it hits both ways I mean it's both the right thing to do for, in my point of view um, you know morally and uh, for simply a duty of care for your people but it's also the pragmatic thing to do in the sense of improving your Productivity, your efficiency, um, your success as a business.
0: At a certain level, when when someone's engaged in their company, they don't even feel like they're working.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you you hear people say that, I mean, a a truism, um, but obviously a truism because it's true uh, that you find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, But certainly, you know, I've been working for 25 years. I've worked in very small organizations. I've spent a lot of time in a very, very large organization, and I work for a small third-sector organization again. Um, And I've had times in my career where I have been utterly disengaged for many many reasons and it's made me ill um mm. and i think you know sadly we all know that feeling of disengagement of dreading monday morning of not wanting sunday night to end of oh, thank god it's friday um and it's unnecessary it's so unnecessary and now that i'm 100% engaged in my job i love what i do um, i just don't have that i can thank yeah. god it's monday yeah, absolutely. absolutely. All right, But
0: at the same time, uh, you know, so we have the, the, the poor health when you're disengaged. Yeah. Then you also have on the other end of the spectrum, poor health when you're over engaged.
1: Absolutely. Yes, you do have to be very careful with this. And it's um, a problem that third sector organisations come across quite a lot in terms of engagement because people get very engaged with the cause um, with our charitable, our charitable organisations, with our not-for-profits, that type of thing, um, and they they forget self-care. They forget to take care of themselves because they simply get so passionate and so involved in what they're doing to make a difference um, that they forget those useful things about actually switching off and disconnecting and taking care of yourself and taking proper breaks and all of that. And you as an employer, um, you as a manager, you as a leader, for me, have an absolute responsibility to make sure that people are working uh, in a rhythm that suits them, um, but that is healthy for them as Mm.
0: well. One one of the stories I... I, Well, one of the things I experienced was I'm a speaker, like you, Mm -hmm. and um, at one point I was invited to speak at a conference for speakers. Mm -hmm. So there we are, we're, we're dissecting the notion of speaking and I'm having to, at the same time, give content about how to speak while speaking. And so I had to walk the talk, basically uh, very much the uh, notion of we're we're talking the walk (laughs) actually. When it comes to running an an organization like yours, therefore, while you may be talking about all the time, to what extent you also have to be doing it within your group.
1: I, to to every extent, um, we have to role model uh, all of the ideas that that we espouse and. We have to understand our own culture, um, and I mean, particularly as a volunteer organisation, essentially. So I, I'm the only employee for engagement for Success, um, but I have a team around me of volunteers and of people seconded in from other organisations, um, and so we have that issue of making sure that people are working in a healthy way. Um, but also, we, I, again, I consider it a, as a responsibility to make sure that our practices are completely engaging. And we were founded on the back of a UK government report uh, that was written in 2008-2009 called Engaging for Success. And that report identified four enablers of engagement. And we completely base how we work on those four enablers. Um, and, And we think about those in In everything that we do, in how we bring new people into the team, um, on how we stay connected with volunteers that come in and out, um, how we manage all of our volunteer groups, uh, all of
0: it. All right. Well, Um, why don't we jump into these four enablers? Because obviously, Mm. just before I get into that, if I'm listening to this uh, podcast and I work in a large organization, I might be inclined to switch off uh, from listening to you because you only are one person and dealing with volunteers. I, on the other hand think that it's even more relevant if you're able to engage volunteers you've eliminated this notion called money Mm -hmm. and so you are you are actually thriving and making uh, engagement happen without that lever which is this money uh, Mm -hmm. story so maybe talk about how you guys well what what are the ways to engage your employees yeah,
1: well, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning on the back of that, that um, as a movement, we have a task force at the very heart of our movement. It's a group of about 50 organisations that do support us. And I mean, as a as an organisation, we have some costs. So, you know, money for us has to be involved to some degree. Mm-hmm. We're currently entirely funded by corporate donation. Um, and so for people listening in big corporations, um, that task force not only comprises smaller organisations, but um, BT law Lloyds, um, RBS, uh, Tesco, John Lewis. Um, so the big guys that are really taking engagement seriously. Um, and again, you know, I, I came from one of those organizations originally. All my corporate experience is from BT. And, and I know For somebody down in the organisation, actually, how frustrating that can be. Well, IBT's supporting this movement, but I look at me, (laughs) yes, yeah. Um, But you know, for me, it's really strong that, and and also a number of our public sector organisations are involved as well. So the NHS are involved uh, at our governance level. So there's a real clear drive to improve engagement across our economy um, that is not mandated by government, it is backed because these organisations think that that is the right thing that they need to do to make their organisation sustainable and to do right by their staff. Um, So I think, just to put that in context there, we are a small organisation, but we are comprised of um, a huge subsection of the, the economy.
0: Network. I don't doubt that you have you're a spoke uh, in the middle of a large number yeah. of, of network. Yeah. I was just thinking about you know making sure that there is a, a reconnection. Why you know how and why and you know, engagement works within the organizations. So <clears that'll throat> talk talk us through what uh, makes for engagement uh, for employees and maybe Um, because some people react to different things
1: they do they do indeed and um, that's where we sort of cross over into one of the many things that are peripherally connected to engagement which is motivation so individual motivation absolutely can have an impact on how you respond and how you respond within a culture Um, and if we take pay for instance, so for many people, money is a motivator. For many other people, money is not a motivator. Um, we tend to consider it um, actually as a hygiene factor rather than something that directly contributes towards engagement, mostly because if your pay is okay, kind of okay it's a neutral thing um it's only um has an impact on you as a negative thing if your pay is not okay you will then be demotivated and it can be obviously disengaging so there are a number of management practices like that and um, things around how we work that i would simply consider to be hygiene factors running along at a certain level You've, you've got to be able to manage your business well you know you yes you need to be paying people a sensible wage for what they do you need to have a reasonable environment where people have got clean toilets and can plug a kettle in and you know all of that that's just standard um but when you go the level above that so we will assume the uh, want of, of knowing any better that yeah you, you know you manage your business fairly fairly well okay and everybody's kind of happy with what they do and, and that's all good um, but then you reach a level above that and that's where our four enablers of engagement come in um, and the research evidences that if these four things are in place within an organization the likelihood is that it will be high performing and it you will have highly engaged staff um, and the first one is You as an employee have a link, an emotional link, really, as well as an intellectual link to the vision of the organization. So you absolutely get where it's going to. Um, But also it's the history. You get where it's been Um, because for however long you've been a part of that. And it's really important that you understand that it's a journey. Um, You understand your place in it. And, and that has emotional resonance for you. And this is what gives us purpose and meaning in a job, right.
0: which is what we're, we're after. Can I just, I'll break into, we're going to keep mm. on going, but um, I had a situation in my prior life where the past wasn't quite glorious. Mm. So the ethics of the past was always there and there was always a feeling of trying to hush it up, yeah. not talk about it. Uh, we're doing great now. We're doing lots of wonderful things, but in the Second World War not so good. Yeah is that something that really will have an impact on people or do people sort of pragmatically say whatever?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, the principle of new leaders coming in and chiseling the hieroglyphs of of the pyramid is not a good thing. So denial and repression of bad things that have happened in an organization's history is, is not good because people lived through it. And if you... Particularly as a leader, if you decide to repress or ignore that, you're repressing and ignoring those people and how they felt about that bad time that you were in. Uh, And also, of course, you, you lose the ability to learn from that history. So, you know, while you, you don't necessarily want to celebrate it and dig it out every year and say, oh, yes, that was the year that we did that terrible acquisition and it all went wrong and we were all miserable for six months, yet you still need to acknowledge that that is a part of your organisational history yeah. and that people potentially are still impacted by that yeah. on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. So for me, absolutely, it is being clear and honest about the journey that the organisation has been on um, and is still going. All
0: right, so we've got the emotional link to the vision of the Mm -hmm. company and even the history keep on going
1: so second enabler is around um, how you are managed and again all of the research suggests that the link between you and your immediate manager is probably the link that has the biggest impact on your day-to-day levels of engagement Uh, and again for anybody who's been in the workplace any length of time we have probably all experienced better managers less good managers and we know what a significant impact that can have. But basically, if you are an engaging manager, you do three things well. You are able to give people the scope of the task that they need to be involved in and you are able to trust them to get on with it. You don't micromanage them. You you let them bring themselves to that task and and get on with it. But you've given them scope, support and parameters to enable them to do that. Uh, You are able to coach them constructively dealing with dysfunctional behavior and openly acknowledging and rewarding good behavior and we take this for granted I mean we do not teach people to manage people we promote people for all Mm -hmm. sorts of reasons Um, and then we just abandon them to get on with this because we assume that management is an innate ability and it's not it's a skill that needs to be learned Mm -hmm. and the final thing that managers do well who engage well is they treat you as an individual Um, they get to know a little bit about you in whatever way that looks like. Um, and they are able to treat you not as a number, not as a, an EIN or a, you know, an employee identification number or as a mass of a team, but you as an individual.
0: Uh, well, this is probably a theme which is going to come up again in our chat here, uh, Kathy. But treat as an individual, I have to understand that you have to get to know me. And by getting to know me, you're having to cross into the other world, which is my personal okay. sphere.
1: Well, see, I really dislike the term work life balance um, because to me it implies a tension and a separation when there is none. It's all life. Work is just a part of our lives. And we are fooling ourselves if we think that the two things do not bleed together. I mean, if you've got one of those bad managers, you come home, you kick the dog, you have a go at the partner, you know, you shout at the kids. It always bleeds. And i say denying that that happens is just foolish and, and delusional. Um, well, so
0: just quickly, I mean, at the end of the day, there are people who have to work because that, and they're mm-hmm. just they, they're at bottom and let's call it Maslow's pyramid. They, you know, they yeah. they they have no choice, or at least yes. they, they've got to a place where they have no choice. And in the third world, of course, that's even more yes. evident. And then even in the first world, that can be evident. But at, at, at another level, we have organizations where that that's not the issue, and yet. <laughs> People still put on a tie and pretend that there's a different world between my personal and my, prime, uh, yep. my professional life. And
1: this is probably where we touch on <coughs> personality. Um, and so, of course, we you know, we don't all deal with things in the same way. And some people like to see a separation between work and life. Um, and that doesn't mean that those things are not existing in the same sphere. It simply means that some people like to compartmentalise more than others. Um I, for instance, I struggle to work from home because it doesn't feel like work to me. So part of what I do to make a distinction between my working life and my not working life is is I go somewhere to work, whether it's a library or whether it's a coffee shop or whether I make sure that I arrange meetings or else. Yeah. And because I am more effective and productive in the spaces where I need to be working if I do that. Um, but other people, actually, working really suits them and they don't need to compartmentalise in that way. They can just say, right, that's it. And they focus and they concentrate and they are more productive working from home than they ever would be in an office so, where
0: distraction and gossip,
1: you know, takes them
0: away from what they want to do. Right, so by, by the very same token, if I'm an organisation and I have an office, I am promoting the compartmentalisation.
1: Yes, Absolutely. And, and, but again, it comes down to treating people as individuals. Some people are going to be fine with that, and it, it will actually be more engaging for them to understand the structure and hierarchy and physical space, and I come here to work and I go away again, and that's how it works. Some people will be far more fluid, and, and they will actually find that structure possibly even annoying um, and disengaging. And so organisations have a real challenge now that we have so many ways of of working to actually incorporate that efficiently and effectively into uh, a structure where people can do whatever it is that suits the person. So, because if it suits the person, the likelihood is that it's going to be far more effective for the organisation.
0: Right. So then I'm, I'm going to guess I might be jumping ahead. But <laughs> when uh, when you go to uh, a Google office and you find mm. home equipment per se you know foo- yep. foo- foosball tables poofs and sleep yep. pods and so on is that part of is that what we need to be doing as well or not
1: um, i think that absolutely depends on the organization so it works great for google um put a foosball table in a bt exchange you just be laughing <laughs> what doing here? so you've got to understand your culture and right. what will work in your culture right. fruit in the canteen works really well in innocent drinks you know, again, fruit in a At network detail. rail office may may not. Mm. <laughs> Who knows? So you, you, you can't just say, right, I'm going to try that thing that somebody else has tried and it will produce engagement right. within mm. my organisation. You have to understand your culture, your dynamics where you are your dna as an organization um and then have a look at what the principle is that so the principle of putting a football table in is that actually people have got something within the office that if they just need that break and they want to go and do something that that takes them away from the space so they can release a mental block or whatever else they've got a way to do it that's all that is and it could be a football table it could be something else so it's understanding what works for your organization
0: all right, so keeping on down the trail. First of all, we had emotional link to the vision. Secondly, yep. we have this, this manager who's got the yep. ability to engage his employees. Um, the
1: next one is your ability as a, an employee to articulate your voice. So whether that's in dissent, whether that's challenge, whether that's improvement, whatever it is that you feel safe and you trust that you can speak and that your voice is heard and acknowledged and listened to. So it's not as simple as simply internal comps or whatever else, you know, I understand what the organisation is doing. It's absolutely two-way and it's one of the biggest defences against reputational risk, for instance. So people in BP knew what was going wrong before that oil spill, there were people in that organisation screaming. Nobody heard them because nobody was listening because the employee voice was not valued. Um, so it's, it's that ability to to speak, to challenge, to have influence at whatever level. Um, but trusting, it's it's very much around trust, that one. Um, you, you know that you can speak out because your voice will be heard. And we don't work in democracies. That's not to say that you expect that everything you say will be actioned, but you expect... A respectful response to it
0: in, in one of the uh, books I'm working on we've talked about the inversion of the funnel and, and the ability for the customer to speak their word and articulate their yes. voice to what extent is that linked with this notion of articulating a voice as an employee in your mind I think this there's,
1: there's quite an interesting dynamic between customer engagement and employee engagement and there are definitely two schools of thought um, One which will put the employee first, one which will put the customer first. Um, For me, employee first every time. If your employees are engaged, you are far more likely to have engaged customers. If your customers are engaged, well, you know, Yes, your employees will get a boost from the fact that they are dealing generally with pleasant people, but it's not sustainable. It's, it's not a strong enough push the other way to actually drive engagement to the levels that
0: the other way will, you right. see what I mean.
1: But they're mutually reinforcing, mm-hmm. um, absolutely.
0: All right, fourth enabler.
1: Fourth enabler. Last. Fourth enabler is is another one that's to a degree about trust. It's about integrity in the organisation. So most organisations have values in some way, whether they're explicitly expressed and you carry them around in a little card on your wallet or you know whatever else, or whether they're implicit and you just simply understand that this is the way we work around here. But if the behaviour that you see around you in the workplace, particularly from leaders, is not congruent with what those values are, then you just open up a huge gap of distrust and again engagement cannot flourish in that circumstance so i mean a very classic one is organizations that say people are our most important asset Um, but if underneath that the behavior you see around you all the time is um is one of bullying is one of aggression in the workplace then you know that that value is is worthless Mm. because you know it's not true
0: I can't remember with whom it exactly was. It was this wonderful lady who started up a um, a advertising agency in London. And we were talking about, she was very much against this notion of writing down your values because she felt that if it's, if you're writing them down, it's because you don't have them and that there is a school of thought that says, as soon as you need to say you have integrity, then you don't. Um, But when, what she found was that once they put it down, it, 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 it's somehow solidified the notions. Yeah. Do you think that there's a, a best practice within that or is it sort of still just every case differently?
1: Um, I mean, I, the vast majority of my experience is large corporate. So it's simply the environment that I'm used to. Yes, you have values uh, as an organisation and they are absolutely, they are codified and you understand what the behaviours are that the organisation attaches to those values. Um my, my view of best practice of that is that you can have far too many um, and therefore I mean, at one point in BT we had 10. I mean, it's just it's ridiculous, indeed. Um, quite, quite crazy. So, you know, three to me would seem a good plan. Um, and, and also you actually need to consciously, again, at the leadership level, you need to live those values. And I mean, that's a very cliched thing to say, but there's no point in having them if you as a leader are not embodying and role modelling those values, they need to become a part of you. And this is where, again, you need to start thinking about you as an individual and what works for you at work. Because if you join an organisation and your values are not, they don't have to be the same as the organisation, but again, if they're not congruent, you're in the wrong place and it's going to make you unhappy and your performance will not be as good because you and the organisation are going to be clashing.
0: In that way. And some
1: people can deal with that. Some people really, really can't.
0: All right. So the person I uh, was just talking thinking about, I had to look it up while, while you are listening, is uh, speaking, was Jenny Bigum and mm. Seven Stars. And it's remarkable. So uh, maybe just a quick thought on in how do you make the, how do you explicit these values in a way that makes sense? What are the rules that, I mean, really, I think we need rules here, or principles anyway, that when you write a value, because we're going to codify them, that these the codification is appropriate yeah, the most important thing there's a little bit of um feedback coming in i don't know what
1: yeah I, they're mowing outside oh, I, I think, think. that <laughs> they just seem to be quiet at the moment um they are, the most important thing for me around that is that you use human language you don't use corporate corporate mm-hmm. um one of the best examples I've ever seen of this is innocent drinks. I mentioned them earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have, I think, three or four values. One of which is don't be lame. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they just have three bullet points underneath it. It's like, get up and recycle your flipping coffee cup, you know. I, and it's just about that. Don't mm-hmm. be lame. Put the effort in. Um, and that, for me, is you just have to speak to people in a human way.
0: All right. I love that. That's great. I'll, I'll find that and put that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, an area that uh, it strikes me is that engagement is going to be different culturally within the company but also culturally in different com- countries yes how yes. how does one go about doing that differently so you know engaging don't be lame you and i get that living in london that's sort Absolutely. of a very londoner thing but in tokyo go for it how do you do that Indeed.
1: Um, We run a a thought and action group um, called our Cross Cultures Group, and they actually spend a lot of time digging into this because a lot of our supporters are global organisations that obviously deal with this all the time. Um, But really, the basic point is the same again. Understand the culture in which you're working. Um, So don't assume that you can apply the same principles in the UK as you might in Japan or so, wherever else, so, you, you, you need to be aware at that big leadership level that you are probably going to have to take different approaches, and that that's actually simply respectful to the organisations and the countries that you work with and that you work in. Um, you know, there, there's a big part there for me. I think about being respectful of individuals, of societies, and of economies.
0: Huh. All right. So, in terms of uh, employee engagement, um, Kathy, one of the areas, of course, I'm fascinated by branding. And to what, what role or to what extent is employee engagement a part of branding in your mind?
1: Um, I would actually say it's the other way around. i say branding is part of engagement, but then, of course, I would say that <laughs> it's something that's been coming to the fore over the last um, four or five years again. And I've done several conferences, um, which are directly employer branding, employee branding conferences. Um, I think there's a, there is a big overlap. Um, and where people are now thinking about branding, all of the th- and, and how you engage employees with the brand, um, they are using a number of the techniques and that type of thing that we would consider to be engagement techniques. But it, it is really as simple as you are you are engaging your employees with something as you would do with a new strategy, um, as you would do with a big transformation project. So you are just simply looking at how you engage people with. A particular change that you want to make or a particular way that you want to be as an organisation. Um, and for me, branding, culture, it's all very, very
0: inextricably linked. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely no Chinese wall there. Um, when um, when we look at uh, branding and employee engagement, uh, is it possible or to what extent is it possible to, to have engagement without a purpose?
1: Um It is possible to have engagement without a purpose because people get engaged with different things. So they can be engaged with you as a leader. Um, So that's a very personal... uh, and In fact, our younger generation have this a bit more. They are more likely to follow a person um, from job to job, potentially, because they are engaged with that person. Um, You can have engagement with a cause as opposed to a purpose. Um, So that might be, I want to save all the animals. You know, I, you've got things that people get very passionate and emotional about that are not as distinct as um, whatever the dog's trust purpose is, for instance, which will be specific. Um, you can have engagement very much at a professional level if you think about doctors, lawyers, people who've worked for many, many years to attain a professional status. And they can actually be very much engaged with their professional bodies and their profession as a whole as opposed to the purpose and the task of the organisation that they actually work for. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're measuring engagement, if you're looking at engagement within an organisation, you need to be very clear what it is that you're studying what it is that you're looking at. So are you looking at engagement With a task, are you looking at engagement with a particular project, or are you looking at engagement with the company and its purpose as a whole? Mm. Uh, So, you know, engagement doesn't necessarily need a purpose as such; it can be on many different levels, Mm. and all of those things will produce positive effects in the person that's feeling engaged.
0: I get that. All right, and uh, so you mentioned measurement. What you know, the most of the times that I was working, we would do uh, questionnaires, surveys. What is the best way to measure engagement in your mind?
1: The best way to find out about levels of engagement in your organisation is to go and talk to people. And the reason I rephrase that slightly is that that arguably is not measurement. It's, It's anecdotal. But it's the quickest, the best, and the most effective way of actually finding out how people feel. And I I don't care whether you're working in a hundred thousand organisation or whether it's five people, and you can still take them down the pub. You go and ask them. You you walk out of your office and you go and speak to people, and that's engaging in and of itself. Um, A survey is not engaging in and of itself. It is simply snapshot. Um, and obviously backward looking by the time you've reported on it um, other things may have happened that will have impacted levels of engagement within the organization so for me they are they are limited in value but they are useful you know I would would never say that they're not um, I think that over the next five or so years we will see a big change in how organizations Use surveys and think about measuring engagement. I think we'll move more towards measuring culture and understanding the cultures that we live in and where we want them to go to. Um, So we'll actually look at how we we track change as opposed to how we put a stake in the ground and say, right, our people are 75% engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, it will be about the differences. Last year, there were 65% right. engaged. Blimey, we've done something really good. Mm-hmm. Or, blimey, last year, there were 95% engaged. Crikey, what mm-hmm. happened? So it will be far more about the differentials and
0: trends mm-hmm. than it will about that stake in the ground. Yeah, and, yeah we're fabulous. Yeah, on the one hand, when you say you go ask, then, of course, you're, you're using your human instinct to listen mm-hmm. see people's eyes, their energy and their voice. But yes. At the same time, it's you. So I'm the boss, and I come to you. Hey, Cathy, what are you... How happy are you? Of the mentor dialogue yeah, and, you know, so if you don't find the show notes the mindset mindset. have this demeanor that's, that's so accepting why. of alternatives you can also like, sign up hey, Minter, you know, I'm definitely Subscribe. Then, then that becomes little tricky. At the same time, on the survey side, you also get really an trails, anonymity, which allows for Josh people to say what's on their mind, assuming you have a trustworthy account, because sometimes... I know in certain organizations, people don't even trust
1: that That's uh, very common that people don't trust it, um, and I think there's, to some degree that's education, because people, you know, you don't get a sensible explanation from HR or whoever's running that survey, as to how statistics and organization work, so people just say, well, you know, I'm the, I'm the only woman in this team of 12, it must be obvious who I am, and of course that isn't how it's done. And so I think there's a degree of education. I also think that's a level of trust in the organisation. If that's how people feel, that is indicative of the levels of trust in your organisation. And you've got a job of work to do to turn that around. And we do come back then to leadership and how leaders behave and what the barriers are to leaders being engaging, and of which there are many. You know, we don't have a leadership culture which lends itself.
0: Emotion, you know, leaders that are able to cry <laughs> uh,
1: or very I Exactly, mean, displaying vulnerability as a leader is being known a big no no culture, and yet it's probably one of the most effective things that you can do in terms of taking
0: people with you. I would argue that it's a big no no And the reason for that is that basically speaking, it's still a masculine dominant culture where. As far as the leaderships are concerned, yes, yes, that's pretty clear. Well, well <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> Kathy, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, our time is yes. up, so tell us uh, how anyone can contact you.
1: Yeah, um, EngageforSuccess.org will get you to the Engagement Success website. Um, and if anybody wants to come and me, you can find us on Twitter, and am and everything else. Um, anybody wants to find me individually, I'm Cathy AB, C A T H Y A B on Twitter. Um, I always warn people now I don't just tweet engagement, I tweet more astounding cake and trays. <laughs> you lot personal. What's a my job?